If you have uh, a Bible with you, you can turn to John's Gospel. If you didn't bring one with you, that's okay. There's a Bible that's in the pew in front of you. You can uh, turn to page 1145 in that Bible. Or you can open an electronic device that you might have downloaded, a, a Bible app, or just follow on the screens. And I, again, I'm just going to read from the 13th chapter. We've been in this chapter. We started last week. And if you kind of remember uh, from last week, it was a, uh, the beginning of the end for Jesus' time here on earth. He's having a last supper, and after the supper was over, he washes the disciples' feet. And when he's uh, done with that, he announces that there's a betrayer among them. So that's where we pick up verse 18, about halfway through that chapter. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him and asked Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is He to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas was had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. We're at the end. This is the opportunity where Jesus has these final words. And for the gospel of John that we're studying, it's going to go on for a number of chapters. It's briefer in the other gospels. But he's focusing, he's slowing down, he's, he's having this conversation with his disciples because he knows he's about to leave. 
and in their midst is Judas. And, and Judas is one who has become synonymous today with betrayal. You're a Judas. And what we mean by that is you've betrayed me. But in 24 hours from this time, not only is Jesus going to be hung, but Judas is going to hang himself. Do you pity him? Do you look at Judas and see somewhat a tragic figure or do you look at him the way Dante did in his inferno? Someone who is to occupy the ninth circle of hell, the very bottom. When I began to look at this text, I originally uh, entitled this passage, The Betrayal of Love, and to focus on what Judas had, had done. But I think when we do that, we, we don't handle the text as well as we could because the emphasis isn't what Judas does, but what Jesus does. You see, if you focus upon Judas, the conclusion that you come to is don't betray Jesus or else. It's a, the moral of the story. But the emphasis that John gives is not upon what Judas does, but on what Jesus does knowing what Judas will do. This incredible, radical love that Jesus has for his people who are all betrayers. Every last one of them. It's not like Judas is a betrayer and everybody else is awesome. Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. And every last one of them, when he goes to the cross, run. And they hide. And you'd say, I'd be different I was there. Oh, yeah? I don't think you're being honest. The truth is, God is creating this incredible, radical, sacrificial community by which the world can see the radical, sacrificial love of Christ. And he's not using, and this is the surprise, if, if you and I, if, if we were in charge of creating this radical, sacrificial, awesome community, we would go after what? We'd go after people like us. We'd go after people that I agree with, that, that, that think and approach the world the same way I do, that look like me, that have the same social economic uh, 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 strata in the community, the same educational level. We would be very homogeneous. But that's not what Jesus does. In this community are a wealthy and poor and everything in between, people of every race and creed and color. Why? Because if you want to show glory, which is more glorious? To get a bunch of people that already are on the same page or get a whole bunch of people who are not on the same page on the same page? That's what he does. It's too small a thing to save white middle class America. It's too, too small a thing to just go after the people who've been to college or not. God is more diverse, more loving than what we would design. And in order to do that, in this passage, he's going to talk about this incredible radical love. He's going to demonstrate it, and then he's going to demand it of his own people. What I mean by demonstrating this whole first section is, is Jesus demonstrating this radical love that he's going to want us to participate in and have for one another. Before he lays out that beautiful command, love one another as I have loved you, 
But long before he makes that statement in, 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 in the last part of this passage, he's going to demonstrate this radical love with his disciples. They've gathered together for this last meal they're going to have because in 24 hours, Jesus is going to die. And before he does that, he, he, he begins to show this love to them. And there's a, an amazing way he shows this love, not just by having a meal with them and not just by washing their feet, but by the fact that he does this with his enemies. He doesn't do this with his friends. These are people that are going to abandon him. Friends don't abandon friends. Family do not turn on family. He's going to make them family and he's going to make them friends by dying. That's incredible, radical love. And rather than focus on all the disciples, he focuses on one. Look who's here. The betrayer. Verse 18 actually defines him and says, Even my close friend, or no, who, he's the one who ate the bread and lifted his heel against me, which is a quote from Psalm 41.9. In Psalm 41.9, it says very similarly, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread and has lifted his heel against me. It's talking about David's friend. David's friend, Hithophel, Betrayed David and ultimately hung himself for betraying David. Jesus is announcing in this quotation out of Isaiah that there's a betrayer among us. There's an enemy among us. There's, there's one among us who's not with us. Another way to say it is there was literally an unbeliever at the Lord's Supper. His name was Judas. And verse 21 tells us that Jesus was troubled in his spirit over this. This is the third time we've been told that Jesus' spirit's been troubled. I told you uh, several weeks ago the word troubled that's been translated for us literally means to groan audibly for people to hear. Jesus is groaning. This is the third time he's groaned audibly enough to where John writes it down. The first time was at Lazarus' tomb when death had taken his friend, he audibly groaned over it. The second time was when he began to contemplate his own death. It says that he was troubled in his spirit. He groaned over his own death. Here's the third time he groans. But now he's groaning over the death and the loss of Judas. This is an incredible love that Jesus has. We we know it because we sing about it all the time. It's, it tends to be one of our favorite things to do to sing about. It's about the love of Christ for us. How deep, deep is the love of Jesus. It's vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. It rolls like the mighty ocean. And its fullness falls all over me. It's interesting when you begin to compare the other gospels accounts to this event, one of them is going to describe that when Jesus announced there's a betrayer among us and they don't know who it is, they all instinctively ask Jesus, is it I? I don't know if you've ever seen that play played out where 
they're all at the supper together and Jesus announces there's a betrayer and, and each one of the disciples, is it I, Jesus? Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? We used to have uh, our church in, in Fairhope play this out at Easter time. We had a drama group that, that did this and we had this other a gentleman that was in the room and he was uh, lack of hearing barely had enough hearing, but he could figure out what was going on. He was a little older gentleman. And, and we got to this point in the play where they were all announcing, is it I, is it I? And he, because when you can't hear, you tend to talk louder and then you really probably ought to. He announced, it's Judas. <laughs> kind of ruined the play. <laughs> the truth is no one suspected Judas. It might have been obvious to Mr. Roberts, but it was not obvious to anyone else. Because each of them are are wondering who it is. And they ask Jesus, uh, Peter leans over to John, who happens to be sitting next to Jesus and asks him, who are you talking about? We'll, We'll take care of him. We'll take him out. We'll give him the blanket party. We will give him what he deserves. No, that's not what they do. You see, there's a power in Guilt that overcomes us, that even if we didn't do this, we know we're guilty of something. It's kind of like when you come home one day and the house is a mess and you look at your children and you say, who did this? And even if they deny they did that, they've done something. It's a great way to find out what they've done. You see, the disciples are asking, is it I, not because, not because they know they're going to betray him, but they know that they can. They know that it's not far from their ability because they've already proven over the last three years, they will fail Jesus time and time and time again. And what do you do with that? When you began to take a moment and you think about your failings of the Lord, what do you do? Or your failings of your, your someone that you love. One thing you can do is you can just deny it. You don't say, is it I? You say, it isn't I. But when that becomes too obvious to deny, you might diminish. You might just say, it's not that big a deal. Yes, I did it, but... Or, or maybe you just become despondent over it. That's the other end of the extreme. If one is deny and, and diminishes on one end of the extreme, the other end of the extreme is to become despondent, to look at it and say, there's no solution to this. I'm always going to be like this. This situation is always going to be like this. One of the things our text is bringing out to us is that's not true. Despondency results in hopelessness. Or because of hopelessness. And, but we have a way to process what we have done. We are able to go to what Christ has done for us and say to him, just like we did in the confession of sin, and, and say, we haven't, we haven't loved one another well. Even when we were trying to be right, we were wrong. Because you can be right about your theology, you can be right about your practice, but you can be wrong about the way in which you demand being right. Particularly when underneath your feet is your brother and sister that you have crushed. 
We need a place to go and say, Lord, we've done this. And we know Jesus on the cross paid for this. And I am forgiven. You think about it. Just think about it. Confession is easier when you know you're going to be forgiven or when you know they're going to demand a price. You know when someone is going to demand a price, you're a lot more resident to confess. But when you know they're going to forgive, you come and you say, I messed up. Jesus is demonstrating this incredible, radical love that he has, not just for his disciples who will ultimately betray him, but also for this one who betrayed his Spirit is troubled over Judas. He washes Judas's feet just like he does everyone else. He's the one who gives the morsel of the Lord's Supper to Judas. We see that in verse 26. It's the midnight, literally, of Judas's life. And we see that though he is going to commit suicide of his body, long before he does that, he commits a suicide of his soul. He chose his darkness rather than the light. Literally, he's moving from light of the Last Supper and with Jesus into the darkness. You see how it says that? He goes out into the night. Literally, he's doing what he spiritually has already done. Jesus did all this knowing that Judas Judas would betray him. Isn't that what he says on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's dying for a very people. Isaac quoted it to you. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's not asking you to clean up your life for him so that he will love you. He's not asking you to get the broom of the wicked uh, witch of of the east. He's not asking you to go on the pilgrimage to Mordor. He's not asking you to do all these great feats for him so that he can love you. He loves you while you're a sinner. He's not describing what you do there. He's describing who you are. You're not a sinner because you do sin. You do sin because you're a sinner. And Jesus looks at that. It troubles his soul but it troubles him enough to go to the cross because he radically loves you. We can give a lot of messages in the church. A lot of them aren't very good when you ask the world around us. But one of the ones we need to be incredibly clear is that God radically loves his creation. He loves his people. Not in spite of what they have done, but in order to save them because of what they have done. That's an incredible, radical love. And here's the amazing thing. He's going he's to turn from that demonstration, and then he's going to begin to talk about this radical community called the church. And he's going to say, I need you to demonstrate what I have demonstrated. That's what he means when he says, now go and love one another as I have loved you. As I just loved Judas, as I just loved you, my betrayers, I need you to love one another. But the way he starts out 
in this love's demand is not with the command. He starts out by talking about glory. You see it in verse 31 when he says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now, is the son of man glorified? And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in in himself and glorify him at once. The problem that you and I have with glory and glorifying is not that we don't do it. We just don't understand what it means. At least the way it was originally meant to mean. And what I mean by that is glory or to glorify something is is to show that someone or something matters to you. That something is important to you. That something has weight over you. That it carries that weight. Or it's so important that this person or this thing really affects the way you think and the way you behave. To glorify is part of what it means to be a human being. The old uh, Latins used to say the uh, the Imago Dei. That is that you and I were created in the image of God. In one way we were created in the image of God. And it doesn't matter where you live in the world. We were all created as people who glorify. Because our God glorifies. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Spirit glorifies the Son. That is, the Son is so important, matters so much to the Father. He's not going to let his death be meaningless or purposeless. It's going to have weight and matter. All of human history is going to hinge on the death of his Son because it's going to save the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. That's how he glorifies. And the the son glorifies the father. The father has determined to save his creation. And the son has come in the incarnation to save the world. But it's not just the father glorifying the son and the son glorifying the father, but he's now asking us to glorify him in the way in which we we already naturally glorify things. You say, what do we glorify? Have you never been to a sporting match? If you happen to be a Caps fan, if you happen to be a Redskins fan, if you happen to be a Ravens fan, if you really are a friend, how do you know a real fan from a fake fan? You know those people who jump on board on Super Bowl years? How do you know the difference? Go look in their closet. Go look in their drawers and you see the jerseys. In the basement, they have the banners. That's affecting your behavior and the way in which you think. You organize your schedule. When when I used to preach in a a little community called Matherville, Mississippi, it was the very first pastor I had while I was still in seminary. It's close enough to New Orleans and, and it was really important that I finish at noon. Because at one o'clock, everything stops so that they can watch. That's glory. That is their behavior, the way they think. Everything about them centers around what they worship. 
don't even think about it. Those of you who cares less about sports and think, well, then you don't do it. Don't you like music? I'll use an illustration that kids will have no idea what I'm talking about. Except now it's become popular to buy them. But then they have to find a player to play them. It's called LPs. When we were young and we loved music or a particular musician, we bought a physical record. And the reason I know you know how to glory is if I go to your house, many of you still have those LPs. It's really come back. A lot of kids like the sound that you can get from an LP that you can't get from an MP3. It's amazing. I I would use eight-track tapes, but nobody would know what I'm talking about. (laughs) And you say, but I don't like music. But you do it in movies with actors and actresses. All you... We, by nature, do this because this is the way God created us. And he's saying, the way in which you glorify, now glorify me. I did something way bigger than come up with an Oscar-winning movie. Way better, better than a top hit. Best hits don't stay there long. I've done something way better than win a Super Bowl. Or a Stanley Cup that is good for the year. I saved the world. More importantly, to make it personal, I saved you. Did you see what he's saying? God saves his people because of what Christ has done. And that's how we bring glory to him. How? How? Now you get it. Now you're ready for verse 34. Love one another as I have loved you. You want to know how to glorify the Lord? Then we love one another. As Christ loved us. It's ironic he calls this a new commandment. It's ironic because we have a very similar one in the Old Testament. That Jesus even quotes. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus 19.18. How can it be new if it's old? Because it's new in three ways. It's a new object. That is... You're not loving your neighbor, you're loving one another. And I think that's important because of what happened when the people got a hold of this command to love your neighbor. What's the natural tendency? I don't want to love everyone. That's what it meant. So you begin to define down who's my neighbor to the point where I can live with who I love. That means I can make a determination of who I love and who I don't love and who I'm going to pick are people that that are easy to love. This world that you and I live in is a divided world, but not near as divided as it was in the first century. When Jesus utters, love one another as I have loved you, masters and slaves were divided. They had very different lifestyles, very different expectations about how their lives would turn out. Men and women were very different in the way in which they could have hopes and dreams and aspirations about their future. Very divided world they lived in. It was also divided by whether you were a Jew or a Gentile. Jewish men would always pray on every morning they woke up and had their little quiet time. Lord, I thank you that you did not make me a Gentile. Lord, I'm thankful that you did not make me 
a slave. And Lord, I'm thankful that you did not make me a woman. And all he was doing is recognizing the divisions of their own culture. It's interesting that as you begin to read the ancient writers, you see that there was a tremendous reputation, negative reputation of Jews in the rest of the world. They were known as haters. The question is today, have we Christians become known by what we hate, by what we're against, rather than what we're for and what we love? The world then and the world now is incredibly, helplessly alienated. Some people look at Washington and you say it's incredibly dysfunctional and divided. And it's progressively gotten so. I'm not pessimistic. I'm just realistic. You can't have a unified government if the people they represent aren't. The reason Washington is the mess that Washington is because the country is the mess that it is. We call them representatives. What's the hope? The hope is the church. It always has been the hope of the world because we bear the message of the gospel, the power of God to change. But it's this object of one another as he looks at the church and he says, the church is a community held together by love. The new commandment creates this new community by love that the world marvels at, though Stuart Caton calls the theater of the world by which the whole world watches. We're not the audience. Sometimes we get that impression as we sit in pews on Sunday that we're the audience. We're the actors on the stage by which the world watches. Church became a band of brothers and sisters that turned the world upside down because of their love for one another as they proclaimed the gospel to the world. Their obedience to this new commandment broke the divisions and alienations of the first century in a way that nothing else could possibly approach and is the only hope for the 21st century. We need to rediscover this commandment in the face of the divisions and the alienations of our own culture. But there's a new measurement as well. If there's a new object, there's a new measurement. The old standard was love your neighbor as yourself. That is, as you Know how you love yourself, love other people. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The new commandment says, love one another as I loved you. The old standard looked inward. The new standard looked outward to someone else's love. The truth is, it was difficult to love your neighbor as yourself. It is impossible to love someone as Jesus loved us. But... Because something is impossible does not keep God from calling us to live that way. He's the one who told you to be holy, for I am holy. Jesus' love for Judas is the example. The people who were out to get him, the one who was his enemy, he still loved. That's this incredible, radical, sacrificial love. As we think about that in in this room and we think about people that we don't know or that we do know that we haven't loved well, we have to love well. And sometimes that takes a little repentance and others it just takes an effort to love them. 
but it means on the other side, someone who hasn't loved you well, you have to forgive them and reconcile with them. Because as, as many times there's been differences in your in your relationship inside the church, you're going to spend eternity with them. You're thinking, well, I can get on the other side of heaven. Knowing God, you're going to be right next door. That'll show you. If you weren't good at loving on earth, you're going to have to be loving in heaven. You and I have disagreements. That shouldn't surprise us. You put two Christians in the room, you're going to have disagreements. You put them in the same marriage, they're going to have disagreements. The question is, does it come with any humility? Does it come with any sacrifice? That's how we're different. That's what the world sees or could see. When we wrong one another, that shouldn't be a surprise. The surprise is the forgiveness and the reconciliation that the world sees nothing of. The world is alienated, it's divided, it's broken. Where does it get a glimpse of a healing, of unity, of beauty, of love, of truth? It's from the church. Here's his compelling argument. If there's the, uh, the new object is uh, one another, if the new measurement is as I have loved you, the new argument here is simply by all this, people will know that you are my disciples. Verse 35, probably the greatest argument that you and I can have communally to the world is our love for one another. For some, that'll be the only picture of the gospel they will ever see, is our radical and sacrificial love for one another. The world divides and alienates. That shouldn't surprise you. The gospel tells us to love. And not just any old way, but the way Christ loved. Glorifying Jesus is demonstrated by our radical love for one another. That's how we glorify. That's our jersey. That's our LP. That's the DVR recording of our favorite movie. This new commandment that's been given to us to obey as a new object. Everyone in the room, even the ones that are very different than us that we've had debates with and arguments over time. It has a new measurement, the way Christ loves. And it has a new argument. Because the, when we love this way, the world will know we're his disciples. And it will give hope that they too can have a healing in their divisions and disagreements and alienations. The key to racial reconciliation, the key to a broken Washington is the church because we bear the good news that is demonstrated by our love for one another. May that be the flavor of our church, the flavor of our time together. When somebody walks in from outside, may that be what they taste and touch and see and feel, no matter what they have walked out of. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these beautiful people that you have gathered and called EP. Rich in diversity and age, 
educational background, even socioeconomic. But united by your love for your creation. Your commitment to fashion a people for your own glory. And telling us to love one another as Christ has loved us. So that the whole world will know we are yours. We're your fans. We are the ones who glory and glorify you. Because of what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.